Welcome to episode 31 of the Neural Network. Today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Kevin Yackel. Kevin's a leading researcher in the field of the neural mechanisms of breathing. Much of his groundbreaking work at the University of California, San Francisco, has redefined many of our understandings of how breathing is controlled at the whole animal, cellular, and even molecular levels. Whether it be from the intricacies of the physiological psi or to some of the neural underpinnings of opioid sensitivity and the mechanisms of vocalization, his research is not just innovative, but also profoundly impactful. So, whether you're a neuroscientist, medical professional, or simply curious about the science of breathing, you won't want to miss this episode. So stay tuned as we explore some of the mind-bending complexities of neural networks and what it takes to make groundbreaking discoveries in neuroscience. He's got some music and stuff. <laughs> but anyway, there we go. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Yackel. Kevin? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Dr. Doctor, I should say. Yeah. You know, I never know if it's like appropriate to do Dr. Doctor or if it's yeah. just Doctor, but either way. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come out on the show. And so what I really wanted to uh, get some knowledge from you, I've, you know, uh, your lab is sort of blossoming as it's as it's growing, especially uh-huh. in the field, and, and I think it's uh, easy to take notice of that. And I think a lot of the work you're doing is fantastic. You're hitting a lot of uh, the big journals and making some big pushes, and so that's part of the reason why you know I wanted to bring you on here and see what's going on in that head and coming up with projects and all that kind of stuff. So to back it up, just for the uh, the viewers, the listeners. Um, where did you do a lot of your training and how did you sort of get into the, the fields of neuroscience or neurophysiology? Yeah, it's actually um, uh, pretty, pretty indirect. And I would say that in general, I kind of find this, well, yeah, taking an even further step back, this is kind of like one, the, one of the things I really love about science is just following a path and seeing where it takes you and not necessarily knowing where you're going to end up from where you start. So yeah, my, um, originally had started been my main interests were in developmental biology. I did my PhD in the biochemistry department and, you know, had a PhD in biochemistry. Um, I really liked that philosophy because it was very, it was, it was, it's a very reductionist approach. You know, if you can have an enzyme and a substrate in a tube and something happens, you can only explain it by those two things. Um, and yeah, the lab that I was in had, uh, uh, primarily been working in Drosophila, looking at how, you know, some of the key genes that were regulators for how the trachea develop in, you know, fruit flies. Um, and had then gotten into, from there, gotten into looking at the lung and how the lung develops. And so when I started in the lab, I was originally interested in um, how the uh, sort of peripheral sensory nervous system in the lung, uh, you know, autonomic nervous system in the lung was developing and working. And through just reading, actually got more interested in the, you know, brainstem and neural control of breathing and uh, central pattern generators. And uh, that was how I wound up studying it. Yeah. So it's, well, it's kind of cool because 
I think the biochemistry part, especially like in, you know, we're in a similar field and with the neural control breathing is it's fun to do all the, like the EFIS recordings and it's fun to do the animal recordings. And then you have to do the biochemical assays and never, you just hear the big grunge, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like who can I find in the department that can do my staining for me or do my assays, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I think, you know, having that background is, is probably extremely helpful. I don't know. What do you think? Like when you're trying to come up with these mechanistic type of questions, I assume having that background in some of those molecular signaling type of structures comes in handy a lot, I would say, don't you think? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, it, it has a, it's had a huge impact and continues to have a huge impact on, you know, the way that I have done and we are doing a lot of science. And I think the, the example is, you know, um, so many people in neuroscience talk about, you know, the the emergent properties of neural circuits, and you know, in my mind, some of these abstract terms that are hard for me to really grasp. And you know, ultimately, to me, if you can, you know, really start teasing apart the building blocks and being able to identify, say, a neuron or class, a set of neurons, and then being able to, uh, uh, you know, to find ways to selectively and specifically manipulate them and see what roles they have, then, then you can start assembling these building blocks to sort of get a bigger picture, as opposed to starting from the biggest picture and then trying to understand what's going on. So it's kind of the opposite direction. I think that that stems from yeah. you know, biochemists trying to purify proteins and then understand how, you know, two proteins interact as opposed to trying to understand how all of the proteins in the cells are, you know, a cell are trying to interact. So, yeah. The, uh, the, the physiologist's take on a brain as an organ, you know, yeah. let's, let's see what the end product is first and then dive in to see if we can figure out how it works. Yeah. But so with the, with the Drosophila, you know, there's a lot of neuroscience work, a lot of, a lot of the classic neuroscience work, especially on, um, you know, rhythmic activities came from many of the invertebrate type of, of research. Mm -hmm. When you were working with Drosophila, or first of all, I guess just for, for the listeners, could, could you give us like a quick, what is a central pattern generator? Yeah. In, in my mind, you know, I, I describe them as a, uh, uh, you know, a collection of neurons that can produce a um, rhythmic and stereotype motor pattern that can occur in the absence of any sensory input and in the absence of any sort of top-down control. So, so um, some sort of group of neurons that just goes like whoosh, whoosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Something that keeps uh, the engine running, if you will. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So with the Drosophila, though, going to the central pattern generators and in, in some of the invertebrate type of models, did you ever look at in, uh, central pattern generation in the invertebrates or did you only get into that once you were into the, you know, the mammalian type of systems? Yeah, I don't, I had only gotten into it once we, once I started, you know, working and thinking about uh, mammalian systems. Was it, uh, was the, was the transition from invertebrate to vertebrate pretty easy or did that, uh, come with its own set of challenges? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, certainly the challenges of more time to wait to, you know, cross two mice as opposed to cross two flies. <laughs> but, you know, I think that the, 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 um, 
power of using genetics in uh, Drosophila system to really, you know, selectively and, uh, you know, really rigorously target, uh, you know, molecularly or developmentally defined cell types was kind of where I, you know, really learned the power of using these genetic approaches to, uh, you know, both define as well as then use those as tools to, to manipulate cell types. Yeah. Didn't they just, didn't they just like, uh, map the entire Drosophila brain, like every yeah. cell within there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that'll be, that, that'll be what your lab's going to do for the, the brainstem I expect. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, but so with the, you mentioned the genetic tools being sort of pivotal and being ordered to understand all of the different mechanisms that go into a system. And certainly, you know, you had mentioned earlier about taking a biochemical approach to understand from the bottom up how the system works rather than, you know, just trying to tackle this sort of black box sort of answer. Do you think, you know, with the genetics coming in and being able to get like with the Drosophila, this, you know, map of every single neuron and its genetic makeup within the brain, do you think Within a system like a mouse that has, let's say, perhaps a little bit more individual variability and expression and things like that, do you think that we would be ever, you know, to a point where we could do a similar system or would it be able to provide much of the same benefit as it would to say like, you know, a Drosophila that only has one tenth the amount of or one one hundredth the amount of neurons that we have? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think even in those systems, C. elegans, Drosophila, where these things have been done, it's still, you know, um, there are so many mechanisms of cell-to-cell signaling that, you know, just knowing the sort of connectome or even cell types and how they're all connected is not, not you know, enough to explain how something's happening. You know, even in central pattern generators, knowing the connectivity, um, between cells, you can, you know, get the same types of rhythmic outputs just by changing the strengths of synapses or strengths of signaling, as well as the biophysical properties of cells. And, and you know, this, is, as you're saying, could be an important way to explain animal to animal variation. Um, uh, but I, I do think that there are certainly limitations to the approach. I, I, definitely think that that's probably going to be the case when you get to more complex behaviors. I mean, breathing is complex, but you know, it's innate and robust. And so I have this sort of gut feeling that there has to be, you know, a predetermined set of cells or uh, connectivity that allows for a, you know, uh, a rhythm to, to, you know, exist from the moment that you're born and, you know, certainly it can be shaped and become more complex as I'm speaking right now and breathing. But, um, you know, it, 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 I, I think there have to be some, you know, developmentally defined processes or certain cell types that are really key for, for this, as opposed to something more vague in my mind, like where memories are stored or how memories are formed. And Yeah. Well, so th- that's what I was going to ask is, do you know, like with, with central pattern generators in general, and especially, you know, diving into the the control of breathing, which I obviously wanted to, to cover, is that with these innate behaviors that are a little bit more, you could say, kind of going on in the background to keep you alive, if you will, how flexible is the connectivity between neurons 
compared to that of behavioral type of higher order centers. And the reason that I ask is because, you know, when we if we continue on the line of, you know, being able to map out the entire brain, you know, if you get a single snapshot of one time and you get all the genetic information, like how stable is that in things like cardiorespiratory control centers that are theoretically more rigid? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I think, I think that will, will be an important step to see what happens. You know, there are building blocks with, you know, in other parts of the brain that have stereotyped collections of neurons that have, you know, uh, uh, stereotyped connectivity, but just knowing that, you know, certainly isn't enough to explain what's going on. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, functioning in the same way from animal to animal or being used in solely one process. So I don't know. I think that that's an interesting um, problem to think about, even with something say as reductionist or simple as, as breathing. Um, uh, I guess I just feel like I had to start on one extreme of the models, which is there are like, you know, key cell types that are really say, you know, forming the rhythm or, you know, perhaps pacemaker cells that are really just ticking the clock that are forming the breathing rhythm, as opposed to, you know, say the more extreme model where, you know, things are completely emergent from the connectivity and it may be different from, you know, animal to animal or um, even from one cycle to the next. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder if it'd be kind of interesting to see if, the function of, you know, across individuals rather than, you know, having a rigid, these eight neurons are involved in this process, but rather this behavior involves some population of the neurons, but which ones it is and across individuals might be different. Yeah. Yeah. But with, so when you're, you know, a lot of your studies, which I find cool is, uh, dealing with some of the molecular mapping of actual circuits within the brain, Uh you know, and especially within, the control of breathing and with, within other fields too, there's somewhat not necessarily a split since it's sort of a smooth line in between them, but you have sort of the, uh, the circuit breaking individuals that are trying to figure out, you know, how these actual neurons connect and, and communicate with each other. And then you have sort of the, the higher, the, the behavioral ones that sort of figure out what's, how does an animal, you know, respond to oxygen or CO2 and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so when you're going in to figure out, how do you discover a new neural circuit? What are some of the initial questions that you, you have to, you know, ask when you're putting a, a project together? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, well, one of the things that I am, that I think is really exciting about breathing or, you know, perhaps even physiology in general is there is, is that there's this, you know, rich history of these amazing, physiological, you know, phenomena that have been characterized, you know, your, your the medical physiology book that's sitting right behind you is going to have some amazing things that have been described in the 1800s that are, you know, well characterized reflexes or, uh, yeah, just general phenomena. And they haven't been revisited with, you know, modern molecular, uh, approaches or, uh, you know, revisiting them to really identify cellular and molecular basis of them. And so I think for me, that's kind of the first order of questions is, you know, what do I feel like is, you know, 
an important question, say from an interesting perspective, as well as, you know, from a biomedical perspective. And, uh, you know, oftentimes going back to this old physiology and then seeing if you can provide a new, uh, you know, a, a new perspective on how it's actually working at a say molecular level. Yeah. And, and, with some of the advents of the the newer technologies of of optogenetics and even some tracers, which I mean, a lot of neural tracers have been around forever. Yeah, you know. But you know, are these some of the tools that can help speed up the process to be able to to map some of these connections? And yeah. and do do you see any not caveats per se, but do you see you know the classic paradigm that that is sort of right now of having a tracer injected? see where it is and then go back and stimulate, you know, is that, is that sort of, how do you think we're going to evolve out of that? If there is an evolution of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, let's see, I think, a uh, a big, uh, you know, an evolution that's, that is occurring with like the, with new technology that's happening is now being able to record, you know, hundreds of, neurons in vivo at the same time while while even doing some of these manipulations that you're describing and i think that if you can start doing say uh reproducible manipulation say by targeting the same set of cells from animal to animal to animal while being able to monitor the activity of many neurons in multiple brain regions at one time then i think you you know can really start trying to understand how different parts of the brain are communicating with each other or influencing each other, or even beyond the brain, being able to monitor, you know, uh, uh, just motor movements in general, or being able to monitor, you know, things like heart rate or blood pressure, all of these things, you could be doing it in, in, you know, one animal behaving. Uh, and, and I think that, that, that to me is, you know, the future that I would, like to to get into i think um you know stimulating a neuron and seeing what what the outcome is certainly only gets you so far in terms of what that cell is perhaps capable of doing it it doesn't tell you what that cell is normally doing right so yeah well that's yeah it was it was sort of a a curveball long question but (laughs) a tough one to, to answer on the surface but with with the advent of some of the newer technologies of at least uh, i guess within some of the different spaces of neuroscience being the advent of instead of just looking at a single neuron and stimulating it and seeing what happens or recording from it and seeing how it behaves in a system yeah we have some of these larger population dynamics or geometric analysis of neural manifolds and, and things like that and how do you see that playing in to some of the, um, not connectivity, but the sort of the mapping studies where we originally had this idea of, you know, here's these clear delineations between nuclei throughout the brain. And this is, this is function. And this is the other one's function. You know, now that we can sort of get these big, large scale maps, do you think that there might be changes in, in some of those dogmas or? Yeah, I, I, um, I certainly think that starting to look on fast timescales at how, um, you know, neural activity in general in say two brain regions is changing in a rapid way as, as say 
an animal is behaving or breathing differently, you know, how, how those, um, as you describe them sort of more abstract, uh, uh, you know, reductions of the complexity of, of what you're measuring, uh, will be, uh, it, I think it will be a very useful framework for thinking about, you know, what could be going on. And I think, it, you know, if anything, having these very, you know, careful, uh, high dimensional descriptions of, of what is going on will hopefully be able to provide um, a framework for, for, you know, doing, say, more rigorous manipulative experiments to really see how you can change or break that system. So hopefully we'll allow one to generate, say, predictive models of, of what could be happening that then could be, you know, rigorously tested with some, you know, in an experimental system. Yeah. And I, you know, I, and the reason that I, I asked, I was curious because, you know, I sort of have a, a little bit more similar background to yours where, well, I mean, I have goats, so <laughs> that was a, the, the backgrounds were a little bit different, but sort of taking the EFIS of single cell, you know, looking yeah. at individual parts of the system. And, you know, it's, it's been, I think one of the things that I try to grasp sometimes when I'm seeing the results of the large scale network things is like, okay, so maybe the, you know, an individual neuron within a system isn't as important as how the whole thing behaves, but you know, it's sort of still mixing that with some of the molecular data is, is still, you know, kind of left unknowns, but yeah. so I was curious, you know, from the, from a biochemical standpoint, you know, yeah. how, how that works in, but yeah, no, it's, it's tough. I always sort of joke around that, uh, you know, you can never be wrong if you say that, that say, you know, breathing, the behavior is generated by the connectivity between cells as well as their biophysical properties. So <laughs> you're never gonna be wrong if you say that, but I'm not quite sure where it gets you to say that, like, how are you, you know, it, it feels like, well, then the problem solved. So, so <laughs> where do we go from here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the easy way out. But so, okay. So diving into the, you know, the actual research that you're doing in the, in the Yakko lab right now, uh, it looks like you have sort of a couple of different delineations of, of projects at the moment. Could you, you know, talk about your, the different projects that are going on right now? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, original set of questions that that start that we started with were still these basic basic questions of how you know the core breathing rhythm might be generated so in particular looking at you know the the primary pacemaker area and trying to identify say cells with unique biophysical properties see if we could molecularly define them say you know if you could perturb those cells whether they were you know, sufficient to stimulate breathing or required for it. And um, through those initial studies kind of followed a trajectory that led us into um, looking at vocalization and how it's integrated with breathing. And that was, you know, uh, very unexpected from where we had originally started, but I think wound up being a very fun thing to think about. So how it is that you know, orofacial behaviors in general are coordinated with breathing. It's a, um, you know, kind of makes sense when you think about why it would have to happen. But when you think about just general vital rhythms, you know, it's not like you have to coordinate your heartbeat with speaking. And so it can function in an autonomous way, yet, you know, the basic breathing rhythm itself can't. So how you have 
other innate stereotyped motor patterns coordinated with breathing, I think, you know, end up, ended up being a really fascinating question that we, you know, want to continue to explore. And then, you know, we still have, I, I still do have this, you know, big interest in seeing if we can identify, say, a key cell type or cell types that's involved in really, you know, generating the breathing rhythm. Yeah. So the the vocalization stuff I, I find fascinating because it's it's really bringing together some of the integrated behaviors into the autonomic centers of the brainstem. Yeah. And you know, so one of the one of the um, things that I, I did want to ask is that when you take a look at some of the classical studies that have isolated brainstem preparations, you know, and, and there's always the challenge with being able to translate those into the whole animal system in vivo. You know, obviously mm-hmm. the slice acts much differently than that of the, of the, uh, the in vivo animal in, as a general, in general. And, you know, how much of these integrated behaviors that are influencing the autonomic centers of the brainstem that control breathing are, let's say, emotionally controlled, volitionally controlled, or how much of them are being influenced by, I don't want to say subconscious, but you you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. things that we don't like sensory stimuli that are coming in that we don't even have control over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, there, yeah, the, the question of what is occurring subconsciously and that, and then how it might be co-opted in order to, you know, be volitionally controlled, um, is, is a question that I, I am, yeah, also very fascinated by, uh, you know, vocalizations, breathing is always ongoing. And so it, it, it's not to say that that question can't be studied with breathing, um, with some clever experiments, I think it definitely could be, uh, with vocalizations, you know, it's not something that's continually ongoing. So there has to be some, uh, you know, higher brain system, or as you're saying, maybe some peripheral signal or something like this that has to be able to turn it on and then it turns off. And so I think studying a system like vocalization gives you the opportunity to, to try to understand, say, when this stereotype motor pattern is initiated, is it through, you know, a higher brain center telling you to, you know, go and vocalize, and then you have a dynamical system downstream that's then just executing that go signal? Or, you know, is there a more complex interaction between these higher brain centers that are commanding you to vocalize, uh, you know, sort of going back to this, this, this discussion of different brain regions interacting and how they're involved in the behavior. So are these higher brain centers really just telling you to go and, and tell the CPGs to do their thing or are they involved themselves in patterning? And so I think that with vocalization, that, that type of question can, we can begin to address it. And then beyond that, how it is that, you know, a system that's important for say coordinating the, the larynx or upper airway, how it would become, coordinated with with breathing you know is it just bypassing your breathing system altogether or is it you know working in harmony with it is it co-opting it yeah you know i think that that's that's the other interesting set of questions that can come out of studying something like vocalization yeah and so i i had a few questions on that that point that i, I wanted to ask but before i jump into that uh i did want for the the listeners um that are either aware or unaware is that that a lot of the work in that vocalization 
came into sort of uh, characterizing a a region in in the brainstem. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Um, the the gist of it is that you know we we found a collection of neurons that have their own autonomous rhythmic activity that's nested within the breathing rhythm. And you know this was all originally found in the the you know in vitro slice preparation and um through uh and and, uh what i mean by autonomous is that you know you could silence the breathing pacemaker and then these cells continue to oscillate on their own and then we could you know anatomically define them we could molecularly define them and then using some of those approaches could could uh you know just happen to find that they were actually um premotor neurons to the larynx, which then led us to think about whether or not they were involved in vocalization and coordinating vocalizations mm-hmm. with breathing. So that's kind of how that uh, story actually came about. And so, you know, we were actually thinking about lots of oral facial behaviors that might involve the larynx. And then upon doing the actual experiments, found that it was um, vocalizations and I think also got got lucky in that finding that in the sense that, you know, we sort of stuck with the same developmental age of neonates where we could make the slices as well as then do, uh, to then look at the behaviors and, and mm-hmm. these neonates mice really robustly vocalize. And so it was very clear to us that, that they were, you know, critical for that process. How did you measure vocalization in newborn mice? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, actually if you just, we can put them into a chamber that allows us to look at their breathing and, you know, cap it with a ultrasonic uh, <laughs> microphone and, and they'll, you know, spontaneously vocalize once you put them in a system like that. Oh, we're so just like a baby. Yeah. Just, just, just like randomly starts, yeah, starts yeah. crying. Yeah. So- they're, they're very, you know, and they're very stereotype vocalizations. And I think it, exactly what you're saying. It's like these innate, these innate cries is kind of the best way to put it. Yeah. Is, does that translate, I guess, and, and what I wanted to sort of unpack a little bit is sort of this uh, interplay between emotional regulation of, autonom- you know, sort of this balance between emotional control of behaviors and then how they feed into sort of rhythmic behaviors uh-huh. that are autonomically controlled, especially with crying. Uh, it's very emotional state that a lot of people end up being in where they start to cry. But, you know, when you back it up to like an infant, for example, you Mm -hmm. know, the the way that at least as far as I'm aware and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, when an infant cries, it has a bit of a different meaning than that of, let's say when you're sad and you're crying as an adult, is that right? somewhat correct to say? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the same in the mouse, you know, the, the, the neonatal, vocalization is really a, a attempt to, or, or, you know, a signal to have the mom, you know, find the, the mouse and bring it back to its nest. Whereas in adults, you know, it, it, vocalizations are used for adult mice. They're used for different purposes like courtship or other forms of communication. Um, yeah. So, so with, with the cry, you know, like uh, I, I, you know, I've heard um, you know, being, called the crying center or something like that. I think that that's been used before. Um, you know, when you have this sort of developmental progression of communication being driven primarily from a center that is, um, you know, that of a crying center, like that's autonomically driven and then sort of com- 
you know, making it go more rostral to a more complex type of system where you have these, you know, emotionally different crying. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you see, you know, is it, is it somewhat uh, appropriate to say that there might be a progression of, let's say, an emotional or, or, or communication type of control that when it is an infant is more primitive and, and non- I don't want to say like non-autonomous, but basically like they might not be able to help the fact that they're crying because it's just sort of the only mode of communication they know. Mm-hmm. And then it somehow migrates or, you know, is there, is there over time a developmental inhibition, I should say, of that center, if that, if you will, mm-hmm. in order to have better control over it as you age? Yeah, I guess I, yeah, that's a, that's a question that we're, you know, very interested in trying to understand in the lab is, you know, when, when you find these, say, uh, these, the role of these centers, say in like the most innate form in a neonatal mouse. And then if you start looking in, you know, more complex behaviors, are those same, say this, this cry center is actually needed or used for adult vocalizations that are suddenly more complex um, and so if they are, then is the complexity, um, being generated by the addition of other signals or is the complexity now built by new properties within those neurons themselves? Um, I think is, is, uh, you know, really interesting type of question, you know, for example, I mean, another example might be when you, you know, hyperventilate because you're, you're, uh, you know, out for a run and your, you know, metabolic system is telling you to hyperventilate. Uh, and then you hyperventilate because you're anxious. Is it, is it, are you hyperventilating? Is the anxiety hyperventilation, you know, turning on it is the mechanism by which that occur that, that that's occurring essentially just turning on these innate hyperventilation type of processes or is it actually you know a novel uh pathway that's that's formed say as you as you put it like formed uh as uh animal ages or as emotional systems develop yeah so the for the listeners the the hyperventilation also comes through when kevin walks up to your poster at a conference and you go oh boy we're gonna find some weaknesses that i have (laughs) in my project no uh kidding but but uh with with the vocalization and uh, you know i don't want to beat a dead horse but uh with with the advent of crying and especially with the infants and it being sort of this mode of communication in order to signal that you know it needs milk or it needs attention or whatever it might be how much do you think you know that plays into being reinforced by uh the mother actually providing for those needs in, in other words like if you were to take let's say a group of mice and they were infants or you know pups or whatever and they're crying and you sort of uh strategically deprive them of being soothed by the mother from mm-hmm. the cries mm-hmm. versus that of of pups that are readily given attention. Do you think, you know, when it is being integrated with these behaviors into the breathing control centers, that there might be changes in the way that they're able to coordinate their breathing with either vocalization or crying or emotional regulation or anything like that? Hmm. Uh, that's a, that's a, 
Interesting question. I haven't, I, I, you know, I haven't thought about that. Um, I guess the, the sort of gut reaction to, to that is that I, I would think that perhaps these very innate processes that are occurring, you know, perhaps by these hardwired circuits would be, you know, not influenced that early, uh, or, or, you know, not, yeah, not, not being easily changed at such an early stage and instead, you know, might be, uh, you know, triggered and controlled by say sensory signals, like the neonate gets cold or the neonate can't smell something or, you know, for whatever reasons it's beginning to vocalize and that when it's, say soothed or near its mom it's not receiving those sensory stimuli to say that it needs to vocalize and and so um yeah i don't know if that answers your question yeah no i i, I totally it's just on the spot so yeah, no. <laughs> it's you know i was i was thinking of you know perhaps what if you you know take some mice and uh you know deprive them of being soothed by their mother you know during the time of vocalization and then suddenly you know once those pups grow up is oh, there is there is there hyperventilation response to a sympathetic stressor better or worse? You know, yeah. are they unable to or are they better able to suppress their own hyperventilations because they know, you know, if yeah. I cry, nothing happens. So. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. That would be a that would be a interesting that would be a difficult but interesting experiment to do. You know, one of the things that I sort of in in that this conversation reminds me of is the, you know, a very simple sigh breath, you know, there's like a physiological purpose to taking a big deep breath, you know, which you do, you know, in, in, in people do say once every five minutes or something physiologically to basically re-expand the entire lung yet, you know, a sigh is used for in, in so many ways to communicate how you feel, you know, you feel frustrated and you sigh, you, uh, can sigh in relief. And, and so there are, there's this, you know, important breath that's occurring that then can be, you know, eventually adapted into a form of communication. Uh, and I think that that's a, you know, really interesting example of, and, and also very simple example for getting at some of these questions that you're, you're referring to. Now is, so you have you have a, a a short little review, I guess you could say, of the physiological sigh, which I think is a, a really great review. I actually just cited it because uh, I needed it for a paper, but uh, <laughs> de de you know, defining the, what the sigh is, you know, yeah. in a trace. But but so you know, listeners can look that up if they want. It's, it's really good. Um, but with the sigh, with like the emotional triggering of a sigh or the volitional uh, triggering of a sigh, when you like, mm -hmm. you know, when you're stressed and you sort of, you can kind of make yourself sigh to an extent, you, you know, and, right. and you can obviously mimic that breathing pattern by doing it. But do you know, like with the physiological sigh, you mentioned, you know, that it's a, it's a innate behavior that's autonomic for a lot of things and it's conserved in some of the reduced preparations. Right. And so there's certainly that, that sort of auto recessatory type of function of it to prevent, you know, the lungs from collapsing. But when, you say, let's say, take protocols of sighing and we try to extrapolate the benefits of it and then we try to reproduce it by, you know, creating whatever protocol some biohacker might want to use of, of giving themselves physiological size every once in a while. 
Yeah. How like do you know what the translation is between trying to mimic a sigh versus that of an you know a a autonomically uh, produced sigh? Yeah, yeah. I I um I guess the the two orders of the the additional layer of that would be when you have say like an emotionally dri- driven sigh. Is that also you know produced in a different way than you know an uh-huh. An autonomic size. So, so I guess the example would be, um, uh, you know, are the same cells and molecules, or say neuropeptides or neuromodulators, used uh, uh, by you know a higher emotive center that's that's telling you to emotionally sigh, which are the same cells and molecules that are also used for you know the physiological size that are happening. And then when you build on, say, volitional behaviors, you know, are you simply just triggering those downstream centers to, you know, execute or are you bypassing them and then, you know, directly controlling either the premotor or motor neurons that allow you to, you know, produce a breath that's mimicking a sigh? Uh, To me, I think these are the, the, those are, you know, quite quite interesting questions to try to understand. Mm, um, I see the other, the other one that, that I think is really neat with regards to a topic like this is with, you know, the, the ability to monitor activity of neurons in multiple brain regions or say monitor the ongoing physiology of an animal to try to understand, you know, what are the physiological outcomes that, that come out of say an emotional side or, autonomic side you know like is there a purpose why do we why why is it that you have a sigh of relief or is there you know a physiological benefit to doing it or is it just you know as a way of communicating well uh you know you know is there is there a reason why if i yawn right now you'll you'll (laughs) yawn in response (laughs) i think it was Gordon Mitchell that came up one time to a poster a couple of years ago that I had, and uh, we were talking about yawning or something, and he had he had posited the hypothesis that perhaps when you let out this big yawn, it, it massages the carotids or the the vagal nerve or something like that, and it was a way to provide sort of a, a physiological feedback system yeah. of of relief, which was which is kind of you know interesting and thought provoking and we certainly yeah. can't rule it out so i mean yeah. it's a it's an interesting question but but along those lines you know with and i wanted to get your take on it especially because you're very uh involved in in the control of breathing and in different neural feedbacks and stuff like that is that there's you know the hypothesis of being able to modulate your breathing whether it be through breath holding or whatever it might be um in order to change, let's say the mod or change the afferent signaling coming back from the mm-hmm. nerves, whether it be from the vagus nerve or sympathetic output or, or you know whatever things like that. And one of the things that you mentioned with behaviorally creating your own size is: do you bypass some of the machinery that is able to you know create these innate and autonomic behaviors to, in order to do it yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, can we just drive the motor neurons directly? make it look like a sigh in the lungs, but within the prebotzinger complex, there is no sigh. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, you know do, so do you think that, you know, when you see a lot of the uh, articles or whatever it might be talking about different vagal nerve stimulations or something like that, like, like how do you, you know, look at that information and try to understand or unpack the validity or not necessarily the validity, but whether or not it can be tested or, you know, things like that in the lab? 
Yeah, I think uh, you know the first order way of testing it or the, the way that we've thought about these things is yeah, just simply by monitoring the activity of neurons in these various parts of the brain. You know, it, it, it's, uh, so the example would be if, if, you know, you were to stop your breathing volitionally, you know, is your pre-botsing or complex going to keep cycling even though you've silenced the downstream motor pathways or something along those lines. You know, it gets complicated when you start then thinking about sensory feedback and, and other things. It may just be that if you stop any part of the system, then everything is going to stop. Uh, but um, uh, I always find it funny. Like, you know, when you're holding your breath underwater, when yeah. you're like, I'm going to be cool. I'm going to go three times across the pool holding my yeah. breath. And you get to the end and suddenly you have that, like you can't even control it anymore. It's like just a, you know, and you're trying to keep your mouth closed because you're going to suck in some water. So do you know, like with the breath holding, for example, like does the signal build over time to the point where it suddenly takes over motor pathways that you just can't even suppress anymore? Yeah. An active process. I, I, you know, I, I, it, it certainly feels like that to me too, as well. I feel, you know, I would imagine that eventually like the, the chemosensory signals to take a breath would, would sort of force you to do that. You know, when you're underwater, though, I guess you have like parallel inhibitory reflexes that are telling you to not breathe. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, the, the volitional control of something like that, I think sort of epitomizes, volition right like there are these people who can hold their breaths i think the world record is like 24 minutes or something like this what and, uh <laughs> like and, a naked mole rat yeah that, no that, reflex. that like ability to do that and to to stop you know your most vital behavior for that long uh you know suppress all dr- urge or drive from your body to breathe i think sort of yeah, epitomizes a volition. Because <laughs> you can't, I mean, is there anybody that can volitionally control, well, besides getting themselves worked up, but like just on a whim, volitionally control their heart rate or blood pressure? I think there are like, uh, so I, I do think there is, um, there have been attempts to, you know, um, say classically condition or Pavlovian condition animals to say, have their heartbeat slow or, um, oh, who have tr- like, you know, attempted to train to slow their heart rate down, whether that would be just through, you know, really relaxing or whether it would be through, you know, finding some way to just like actively slow your heart down. Um, I don't know that that's, that's known. It would be very neat though, if there were to be a way that you could, uh, you know, train an autonomic process. Like, yeah. Yeah. Is, you know, well, it's cause you know, you certainly can calm yourself down and get your heart rate down, you know, get yeah. rid of the white coat syndrome if you will. And, uh, but the latency of it is sort of very, yeah. very long. And so yeah. it seems like you're sort of just feeding input that may or may not modulate something right. versus breathing. Like you can just stop if you want right. to stop. Right. Like there's, there's nothing preventing you from just stopping breathing. Right. Um, you know, do, do you think that with looking at some of the, the behavioral higher order centers and their ability to have inhibitory control over uh-huh. those things, is there a reason why we have such good control 
over inhibition of, of breathing versus that of some of the other things? Cause I mean, you're not going to live, you probably, if you stop breathing, you're similar to stopping your heart. Like the time until death is pretty similar, I assume. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean the only, yeah, I, I've, that's like the, the, the heart and the, and the breath are like the, the perfect, they're, they're both, you know, critical vital behaviors that we do maybe the two most yet they have, you know, one striking difference is the ability to stop your breathing and the, you know, ability to not stop your heart. Um, I guess the, the, I've thought that maybe the, the reason why we might be able to stop our breathing is for example, um, you know, if you don't want to breathe in something noxious or yeah, you, you don't want to, you want to be able to hold your breath before you dive into water or, you know, you have to, develop ways to coordinate breathing when you're chewing or swallowing or, um, yeah, speaking. And so maybe having a uh, faster rapid control over breathing is, is, you know, something that was really needed to be, you know, developed. Do you know, like, I'm just thinking, I don't even know if there's any studies. I'm wondering if you know of any with, uh, like, let's say a chronic tracheostomy tube. Mm-hmm. that they no longer necessarily share the same hole for breathing as eating anymore, whether their volitional control over respiratory functions becomes impaired. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I suppose they're on a ventilator most of the time, but, but still, I mean, it's kind of interesting, but uh, that's what I was going to ask with, uh, you know, with the crying center and bring, bring everything together. Uh, if, you know, did you, did you have any mice that didn't vocalize or did you have any that had some sort of um, anomaly to be able to vocalize like paralyzed vocal cords or, or larynxes or anything like that? And did it change that center's development? Yeah, we haven't, we hadn't looked at, or we, yeah, there are, there's certainly a variability in the, in the, in the, how robustly the mice vocalize. I think probably that stems from more as you're, you know, we're originally asking about just inter-animal variability. Um, we didn't, we didn't have any systems to look at, you know, how, how it was, how it changed or how it was developed in, in, you know, some of these altered systems. More recently, we have been looking in, you know, different genetic models for, for autism with the the notion that you know if there are uh you know perhaps in contrast to say a uh, uh, idea that you know altered speech or just phonation in general is due to uh you know say like a higher brain thing as opposed to you know it, it could be the case that these that some of these challenges are actually due to you know abnormal motor patterning systems themselves. So thinking about in, in, you know, we have been looking at different genetic models in the context of, uh, you know, these CPG neurons for vocalization. So whether they have abnormal vocalizations and then whether this is due to, you know, uh, uh, the development or changes in development of this cry center. Hmm. It'd be fascinating to see. So, so with uh, putting it all together and looking forward is what's happening uh, in the future in, in the Yakko Lab. You obviously have, you know, a clinical background with your, you know, MD training as well. So 
where do you see, you know, the research on what you're doing in these different brain regions translate over into some of clinical conditions or anything like that? And, you know, where, where do you see your lab moving forward from here? Yeah. Um, let's see, uh, in terms of, you know, I, I think what would be still the most amazing thing to find would be if you could identify, you know, a cell type or cell types that were really critical for breathing and, or generating the basic, you know, subconscious breathing rhythm and, and, you know, ultimately identify the biophysical properties of those cells, or maybe even say set or, or the ion channel that really is, is, you know, critical for them to, you know, uh, uh, function in, in, you know, producing the breathing rhythm, uh, ultimately with, with, you know, perhaps some idea that one could develop, you know, pharmacological approaches to control breathing. So going to a hospital and the only way that you can really control breathing is with mechanical ventilation. You, you know, people all over the world take medicines every day that allow them to control how fast or slow or how strongly their heart beats. And, you know, kind of the only pharmacology really for breathing is opioids that stop you from breathing. And so I think a really neat direction would be if one could develop, you know, ways to pharmacologically control breathing, Mm. Um, which, yeah, maybe in some setting like, uh, you know, critical care setting or, you know, neonatology or something like this, where you need to, um, ensure that breathing persists or, or change breathing in some way, you, you might be able to, uh, pharmacologically do that. I just, I think of like, uh, you know, the blue bloaters in COPD, Yeah, you know, the, the pink puffers and the blue bloaters. Yeah. Yeah. You can transition one from the other. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, yeah, breathing has some of the most common, it's, you know, sleep apnea, some of the most common conditions in people as well as some of the most devastating like sudden infant death and so i think there could be a broad range of uh clinical scenarios in which say if you had the ability to pharmacologically control breathing that you could use that in uh, uh one nice avenue is there's been a lot of detailed characterization of you know sensory systems peripheral sensory systems say like vagal sensory systems. I know a lot of people are looking at, you know, the, the sensory systems in the lung themselves and then how those might come back and modulate breathing. I think, you know, those have been looked at in very simplistic, say basal breathing behaviors, but, but really what role these types of sensory systems play in, you know, breathing in all sorts of contexts when an animal is running, when it's hypoxic, when it's hypercapnic, when it's, you know, sniffing or calmly breathing or, you know, in, in which, in what way are these peripheral sensory signals, you know, important for the modulation of breathing. And um, that also kind of gets at this question as well of, you know, top down or volitional control of, of breathing or how it's, uh, you know, co-opted or integrated with emotional responses you know whether all these different pathways are converging upon the same types of mechanisms or or are they all you know distinct mechanisms that are producing the same outcome i think is uh a really you know interesting future question to to think about 
Um, yeah, and then I and I think continuing to try to understand how different brainstem pattern generating systems, or if there are different other brainstem pattern generating systems for stereotyped, say, orofacial behaviors, and then how they're coordinated with each other, how they're coordinated with breathing. Um, many of the same types of questions can be asked for, for all sorts of other unknown things. So, uh, yeah. So lots of, lots of exciting things coming up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I promised I'd get you out of here by three. So okay. I wanted to thank you once again, yeah. very sincerely for joining the podcast. Super interesting, very, uh, thought provoking. And obviously, you know, the, the Yakko lab is producing very, very cool stuff. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm excited to see where it goes and in the work that you're putting out and, you know, we'll keep, uh, throwing, I think, I think, I think every paper I've written has cited you a few times. So <laughs> it's very important stuff, at least to me and hopefully to everyone else listening. So, <laughs> so thanks again, Kevin. Yeah. Great. It's nice to chat. Yeah.